Hey, what's going on, y'all? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and I have another throwback interview for you from beyond the album cover. It is with Danny Wood from New Kids on the Block. Yes, that's right. I'll say it again in case you didn't hear me for those in the back. Danny Wood from New Kids on the Block. This interview was conducted on the time machine in the summer of 2007. And what makes this interview so special is that it was a full year before their reunion performance on the Today Show, which led to the block and everything else that has happened since they reunited. Danny is open and candid in this interview, no holds barred. And this is a special interview because he rarely gave any interviews before new kids on the block get back together in 2008. He talks about their formation, hanging tough, step by step, his thoughts on take that, in sync, Backstreet Boys, the music industry up until that current time, and talks about what he wished new kids would have done differently in 94 before they got back together in 2008. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this throwback interview with yours truly, with Danny Wood from New Kids on the Block, right here on Beyond the Album Cover. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, inside the time machine, playing the best in new and old school hip-hop, R&B, and everything else in between. Right now on the phone with me, I have Danny Wood, member of the late 80s, early 90s pop group, New Kids on the Block. Danny Wood, welcome to the time machine. How you doing? Good, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. The international fans and stateside fans of New Kids are going to appreciate me for this one. Oh, yeah? All right. Cool. All right. Now, let's go ahead and get this started. Now, first... Tell me what it was like growing up in Dorchester and paint a picture for those of us that never been to the northeastern part of the United States, let alone Massachusetts. Um, I guess it's it's comparable to growing up in um like Brooklyn in New York. It's it's a it's a neighborhood in Boston and um pretty diverse neighborhood where you had um different sections, you know, of, of ethnicities and, and different parts of uh the neighborhood. But very much, you know, we we all grew up during busing. We all went to public schools, so we were the white kids bused to the all-black schools. And, um, you know, for me, it was a great experience. It was tough at times, but I definitely wouldn't change anything because it definitely has, you know, made me who I am. Right, and how far is Dorchester from Roxbury? It's right next, they're right next door to each other. Okay, now what were you doing prior to New Kids on the Block? Um, well, this was during the time of, of, you know, when, like, Eric B. and Rakim was, you know, first breaking out, and, you know, Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh, and I, I was, I was dancing, I was break dancing in, uh, in a local group in Boston, so I had been doing that, and I also had been singing before in choir and stuff like that. Okay, now, how did you hear about the auditions for New Kids on the Block? Well, I heard I heard through Donnie Wahlberg, who's a member of the New Kids on the Block. I heard through him we had been going to school together since first grade, so we were best friends. And he heard about the auditions um, through I, I don't even remember how he heard about it, but he told me, and he was like, "Yo, you got to come try out for this group. You know, Maurice Starr, the producer of New Edition, is starting a new group, but it's going to be all all you know white." white guys that could sing and dance and he's like you'd fit you'd fit in perfect and mm. uh i went and tried out probably a week later and you passed the audition with flying colors right 
I don't know about flying, <laughs> but but you got in. I did my thing. I hadn't I hadn't been singing, you know, regularly, but I always had the training. So uh, yeah, I went in there and did my thing, and it all worked out. Mm, Cause I believe Donnie was the first one to get picked. Then he went ahead and recruited Jordan, John, Mark was originally in the group, right? But he later left, right? Yeah. Well, th- me and John tried out the same day, mm-hmm. and Mark was or- it was originally Donnie and Mark. Mm-hmm. and Mark dropped out, and then Jordan auditioned, and then he brought John the same day as me. So me and John both auditioned the same day, and then Joe came later. We had to, like, kind of search and find Joe to find a, you know, a younger kid that could sing, you know, kind of like the the Michael Jackson or the Jackson 5 type thing, and mm-hmm. it took a little bit of looking around. Right. Whatever happened to um Jamie Kelly, who was originally in the group? Well, Jamie just... He 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 really you know in all honesty he wasn't um, as he wasn't a great dancer he wasn't a great singer so it was kind of like it was eventually gonna happen mm-hmm. that he was you know we were gonna have to start looking for someone else or keep it a, a four piece right because I had saw in the behind the music Jordan was saying how Jamie's parents felt that the group wasn't a sure bet so they pulled him out so that he could focus more on school uh no. That's not. It was a group decision. Right. Not really. I don't even remember meeting Jamie's parents. You oh. know what I mean? Right. It was a group decision mm-hmm. that that uh, you know, he wasn't gonna cut it in the long haul. Right. So kids don't ever quote Eat You Hollywood story. Come on, man. I didn't even do that thing. So it's like, where are they getting their quotes from and everything? You know, they're not getting all the right information anyway. So. Right. Now tell me about those early years. The early years of the new kids was really tough, man. We we basically we went through a kind of training that, you know, the groups that came after us don't even they don't even know what what it's like. I mean, we basically for the first year performed in front of all black crowds, mm-hmm. you know, throughout Boston and then on to the Apollo in New York and um you know, that was our training. That was the way Maurice Starr like was gonna get us ready you know for the mainstream he was like if you can make it here you can make it anywhere and and it worked man it really it really made us have the ability to win over the crowd right and most casual fans don't notice that your guys original name was Nainook oh wow you're really pulling it out man yeah yeah now how did that name come about did Maurice come up with it look yeah that was strictly a Maurice thing that was just like some crazy name. I guess there was some thing called Nainuka the North or some <laughs> like Sasquatch abominable snowman character. I don't know. It was some crazy thing he had and, and you know, we never liked the name and then we went in one day to record this song called New Kids on the Block and we started getting at him like, Yo, this is a good name for the group, let's change it to this and you know, it didn't take long, and he was like, yeah, this, that's a good name. Right, and um, you guys released your debut album back in 1986, right? Yeah. And it was, like, received very little. Be My Girl got played up in Boston, but then it came and went. And then Columbia was like, mmm, first album didn't do too well, so I heard that Maurice and Dick went to the brass and decided to go ahead and beg to give you guys another shot with Hanging Tough. Um, that's, that's not really the truth i mean go ahead set the record straight well obviously 
when the first album failed, uh, Maurice Starr and Dick Scott, our manager, you know, did ask, you know, Columbia not to drop us from the label, which tends to happen after you have a flop album. But Cecil Holmes, uh, who worked for Columbia at the time, was the man who said, look, we got to keep these guys. I'm telling you, they're going to be big. And without him, we would have never had uh, uh, Hanging Tough or any success whatsoever because he basically convinced, you know, Tom Mottola, Donnie Einer, and, the, and those guys to keep us at uh, Columbia. Right. Now let's back up to when you guys went on Apollo and Soul Train and performed the right stuff and Please Don't Go, Girl. Now, what was it like for you guys to perform at a crowd where it's predominantly African-American and you guys are doing basically pop R&B? For us, it wasn't anything new at that time. It was that we knew what we had to do. We felt like we could get the job done because we had been through our very first show ever in Boston was at a thing called the Kite Festival. And, you know, people have been known to get shot there and jump there. And it's a big festival where people are supposed to be floating kites and everything. But it's really a place where kids went to get in trouble and to, like, talk to girls and, and to see music groups perform. And that was our first show. And we got booed and things thrown at us. And I remember there was records flying through the air at us. And so by the time we got to the Apollo, it was like a... it was Not that it was a piece of cake, believe me. We were all nervous and, like, you know, this is the Apollo. You know, legends have performed there. But we, we had confidence that we could do it. Right. I know from experience because I went to Apollo myself, and they weren't kidding when they said, there's the roughest crowd you're ever going to play for. Oh, there's no joke. I mean, it's just, I mean, we saw some groups go on before us that got swept off the stage. And, um, you know, the one thing at that time with the five of us, we all had one common goal, and it was only to, to you know, to tear it down. You know, that was our common goal every show we performed. And, um... It made it a lot easier when you had five guys united like that. Right. Now, when Please Don't Go Girl came out, it slowly gained steam. And then by the time the Apollo parents came on, it's, or like when you guys opened up for Tiffany, that's when it shot into the top ten, correct? Uh, yeah, well, it was it was, it was was kind of bubbling. And then we, we, we got the opening slot uh, on the Tiffany tour which is, that's a funny story, because we had to basically audition why Tiffany and her manager ate dinner in her dressing room. Wow. And we performed, like, why they were eating, standing right in front of her with hardly any room to do anything. Wow. So One it was... of the most humiliating experiences of my life, believe me. It's like, I mean, come on, you couldn't have taken the time to bring us into, like, a room, and you know what I mean? Yeah. And so we got that gig, and through that tour, that summer tour, really helped us because we got to hit a lot of radio stations. The crowds weren't very receptive to us. They were there to see her. But from them few people in the crowd that liked us, it just started to spread from there. And it took like 20-something weeks for the single to go top 10, for Please Don't Go Girl to go top 10. Mm-hmm. Now, when you guys auditioned for Tiffany Tour, it was kind of like you had the Crush Groove moment, like when LL went into audition mm-hmm. for um, the record company and the movie Crush Groove, and they said audition was over, and they hit the boombox and went to radio. Yeah, 
it was just like that. It, there actually was a boom box, and we put the cassette in, and we started dancing right in front of her. And um, I got to tell you, man, you know, that'll, I'll, I'll never forget that because it was like, it was sometimes just the sacrifice of pride you have to make in the music business was just something I kind of kept telling myself for years after that. Please, you know, I hope I never have to be that and be in that position again. Because it was, it was pretty humiliating, but then in the same breath, it was worth it because we, we got to open for her and, you know, we wouldn't have had the success we had without that tour. Right. Now, when was it the moment for you that you noticed that, man, we finally arrived? I would say um, we did that summer tour with Tiffany, and then we did clubs for the next eight months, which basically we could have been performing in front of 10 people to 1,000 people. It would vary depending on the event and where if it, you know, it was a radio station show or whatever. But then the next summer, we were going to do the Tiffany and Us again, and this is when the right stuff had started to break. And the first night, we opened for her. And when we got off the stage, you know, I would say about 75% of the crowd left. Wow. And, you know, honestly, Tiffany's a really, you know, wonderful girl. I felt really bad for her. But that's when we kind of knew, wow, these people were really, are really here to see us. And it's kind of, that was, you know, a moment I'll never forget. And then the next night, she opened for us, and it stayed that way for the rest of the tour. Mm. Now the dance for the right stuff, like the oh, 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 oh. Um, I believe I kind of seen that, like, with Morris Day and the time. Like, who did the choreography for the right stuff? You know what, man? That dance will haunt us forever. <laughs> and us being, you know, kids that grew up in the street, when that, when the choreographer, I don't even remember the choreographer's name. Tyrone Proctor? Yeah, there you go. That Tyrone Proctor came to us and, you know, had that whole move. And what do you think our first thing we said? We were like, yo, that's Morris Day in the time, Jungle Love, man. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm telling you, you know, this other audience hasn't seen that dance. And, you know, we never imagined that that would be like, I mean, if I, I'm still, I'll, I'll be at a club now. And girls will be in the middle of the club and say, aren't you blah, 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 and start doing that dance in front of my face. Wow. <laughs> Wow, and it's almost about to be 20 years since Hanging Tough. Yeah, yeah, it's just... 1988. Yeah, yeah. I was three years old at the time, so, you know, by me being... I was born in 85, so I really didn't see the phenomenon first time around. I later discovered that, but we're going to get into that later. Now, Danny, come on. We got to keep this question clean. What was the wildest thing a girl has ever done to get to the new kids? Oh. If we got to keep it clean, I can't really, I can't really say many of the things because <laughs> there's some wild things some girls have done. Yeah, let's keep it PG-13. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, man, but, you know, you got to really use your imagination on that question because most of these girls was basically willing to do anything. <laughs> And that's about as PG as I can keep it. Wow, wow. So basically, you can get what you want in that department if you catch my drift. Um, yeah. They, <laughs> they, could, get, they could get to us if they knew the right avenues to go down. Right, because I had, um, 
So on the e Travel story, they were talking about how moms would check in their daughters and her friends to go up and down the hotel to rummage through you guys' rooms, girls scaffolding trees, and some of them know where you guys are staying even though you have aliases before you before the bus even pull up. Yeah, they, they have their own network. You know what I mean? Back then, they had their own network. And, you know, you got to give it to them because this is, you know, the Internet was just starting and all that. And, and But these girls still knew how to figure out where we were what we were doing, where we were going to be, and they they would be there. Right. Now, were you guys listening to New Edition prior to New Kids, or did you listen to New Edition during that period? No, nah, I mean, we were fans from when they first started since, you know, Candy Girl. I mean, they were like, we always, you know, look, looked up to them. They were like an inspiration to us. I remember going to their, one of their shows at, um, you know, in an arena and just being in awe. And this is when we were just starting out as a group, but they were huge. And, you know, for us, they're, you know, they're, sometimes it's a, little, it's a little strange because the whole phrase boy band comes from us. And then, you know, they, that's what they call that kind of group. But New Edition for us was really the ones that started that because you can go back to the Osmonds and Jackson 5, but those, they were family groups. And New Edition was, like, really the first boy band. Right. You know? And and they were just, we kind of, we modeled ourselves after them. Definitely, because um, I interviewed Brooke Payne a couple of months back, and he said that he did some choreography for you guys. Oh, he was, Brooke's, Brooke's my boy. That's like, I mean, those were some of the funnest times in the group when we finally got the chance to, um, this was on, like, Step by Step. He got involved with us then, and, you know, it was it was incredible to work with him because he you know he's from Boston so there's automatically that bond, but then just he he did so many things that we had loved with New Edition that it was just like the an incredible experience to be able to work with him. Yeah, so it's a good thing you setting the record straight because you know both groups came from a restart, so basically there was no love loss for New Kids and New Edition. Nah, they came to our shows, we went to their shows. I mean, I re- I'll never forget one of my greatest memories being on tour is we were doing a show and uh it was like ronnie mike ricky i think ralph was there they was all standing you know they were all we had you know a special vit section in the crowd and like giving us a standing ovation wow like at one of our shows and that i I, I couldn't believe it i was like are you kidding me i mean these guys are like seriously our inspiration and, you know, with everything, performance-wise, musically, vocally, you know, we looked up to them in every way. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go into the step-by-step period. Mm-hmm. Well, what do, you want, what do you want to know about the step-by-step period? All right. Now, when step-by-step came out, this was 1990. Yeah. Now, the album went well, but the merchandising, dolls, cars candy pretty much anything you can get your hands on you guys were everywhere yeah you know it got it got out of hand at that point but you know it it happens with a lot of groups where management is just approving everything and we eventually had to get it under control a lot of the stuff we loved you know and definitely you know like the dolls is something when you have a like a, a new kids like ken doll whatever it i mean that's something you know my kids still can look at it and are like wow my dad had a doll so, you know, a lot of stuff was cool, but 
you know, for me, that got out of hand. And even musically, some of some of the things that happened musically, I think a lot of people involved with the project got too caught up in the the magnitude of how famous we were instead of just keeping, you know, to we always still try to make good records. Right. Because I know you guys were probably in the back like, Maurice, we know we're the biggest group in the world, but do we have to have our name and face on every freaking thing? Well, to be honest, most of that wasn't Maurice's fault. Most of that was the management's fault and just, you know, it got got out of hand and it's kind of like a runaway train at that point. And we eventually got it pulled back, but it was a little too late because there was just about everything out there. For me, more, it was the music side of things when Maurice is writing a song like Tonight where, you know, he's kind of ripping off the Beatles and then the lyrics are like all kind of us bragging on ourselves. I was very uncomfortable with that. But these are the things when you're in a group, you make sacrifices, I voice my opinion, and then you kind of let it go and you just do it. Mm-hmm. Now, let me back up for a minute. I think I read on some website that I'll Be Loving You Forever was originally intended for Smokey Robinson. Oh, I never heard that. Well, I don't know if it's true or not. I thought I thought this was something that I heard. Maybe it was an urban legend or something. Well, Maurice worked with the stylistics, you know, he wrote for them, and uh, that that's a possibility. I know later on we got to do a tribute show um, for Smokey Robinson, but I never heard that that song was meant. And a Step by Step was actually recorded by another group Maurice had. I can't think of the name. It, you know, just a group he had locally in Boston. Perfect Gentleman? No, not Perfect Gentleman. It was a group that never became known. Oh. And I can't think of the name of the group, but they recorded it originally, and we were always like, yo, we love that song. So when we went to do the second record, we were like, we got to record that, because it never became a hit for this group. Mm. Now, why was there two versions of Please Don't Go Girl, the video? There was two versions? Yeah, because I remember... um, you know, watching on BT back in the day, there was this oh, ver- right. with you guys in the snow where Joey oh. looked about eight years old. Yeah. Oh well, see that the first version of uh, "Please Don't Go, Girl." Maurice played. Maurice paid for that. Our producer Maurice Starr paid for um, that because the record company wasn't going to do a video. And then eventually, what happened is um, a radio station in uh, Tampa called up the record company and said, don't you guys know you got a hit record here? And they were calling about, you know, New Kids on the Block, Please Don't Go Girl. And then a few days later, a station in Denver, Colorado, called up saying the same thing. So then they started to move on it and then put some money behind us and did the, the you know, the good, the more appropriate video, which everyone kind of saw. And not too many people saw the, the old version. Right, because I remember seeing that like back on BT back in the day. And it also should be known, too, that you guys were getting a lot of love from the R&B crowd. Well, that was kind of, you know, the whole backwards thing for us is we always thought we were going to break R&B first because that's kind of how we had been trained since, you know, since we started. And when everything went so pop and then you had the merchandise, 
and then with the step-by-step record, and, you know, not every song on the step-by-step record, but some of the songs are very, you know, really, really pop. Um, you know, it's a little weird, a little weird for some of us, but, um, you know, we we definitely, I mean, the, the R&B side of things played the first, you know, single, which was Be My Girl off of the, the first record, and then they played Please Don't Go Girl, and we thought we were going to break that way first and then maybe go pop. Right, because Please Don't Go Girl, in all actuality, it's basically a R&B ballad. Oh, it's straight, that's straight up soul. I mean, Joe, when he sung that at the Apollo, them women, grown women in that place, fell out. Wow. They couldn't believe it. Like, you know, little a little white kid singing like that. Wow. Had that much soul, yeah. I mean, you, you would if you had heard that record and not know who we were, you would think it, it was a black group singing. Definitely, because um, I remember, too, at, at Apollo, when you guys were doing the right stuff, the crowd was going, Go, white boy! Go, white boy! Well, you see, that's the thing. That's how we were trained. And, you know, everything happens for a reason, and things go the way they go. And I honestly wouldn't, you know, change anything, because I know where we came from, and I know, you know, I know the whole history of the group. But I was always, when things went a little too pop, you know, I was always a little wary of that, and it never never really sat well with me. Right. Um, you're familiar with the R&B group High Five, right? Of course, yeah. Um, what was your reaction when you heard about Tony Thompson's death? Uh, just, you know, sad, man. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's sad to hear, you know, when, when anyone passes away in the, in the, in the music business and, these days, you know, it's it's very upsetting when, um, you know, may she rest in peace, someone like Anna Nicole Smith gets more publicity than James Brown. You know, it's 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 really upsetting. And, you know, for me, that's kind of why I try to keep on the outskirts of the music business and just and just do what I do best and write and and, and make my living the way I do and and you know, kind of stay out of all the, the inner workings of the, the music business because it, it, it can be very, very cutthroat. And um, when someone passes away like that, it's just, you know, it's, it's just sad and my heart goes out to the family. Mm, definitely, definitely, definitely. Now, explain to me, this is after Step by Step and you guys are coming off of games and I believe somebody that worked for you guys at one point in time made an allegation that you guys lip sync. This was during the whole Millie Vanilli scandal. Right. And you guys were on your international leg of the games tour. You, you guys were in Australia. You flew from Australia to L.A. to perform on Arsenio to address the issue. Then you flew back to Australia to clear that up. Well, the funny thing is um, it was our, our music supervisor that we uh, fired, you know, probably six, seven months before then that did the accusing. But basically what he was trying to say is that we didn't sing everything on our records. He wasn't even really trying to say we were lip-syncing. But the whole Millie Vanilli thing was out there. So when the press got a hold of this, you know, our music supervisor saying this, um, you know, it all got twisted around until we were lip-syncing. And if you came to our live shows, it was apparent we were singing live because we were up on stage huffing and puffing and dancing and singing and it, it didn't sound all that great all the time. And then plus the noise of the crowd, sometimes we couldn't hear ourselves even singing. So, um, yeah, we we basically heard the accusa- accusations, and we were definitely the kind of guys that were like, wouldn't take anything sitting down. 
And we got on a plane, went to Arsenio, sang live, and for me, that killed it right there. You know, anyone can write what they wanted after that point, but we went and did what we had to do. And Right. So what did you guys do during your free time, if you ever had any? Because I know you guys probably couldn't go anywhere because girls were just everywhere. Um, I tried to live as normal life as possible. I mean, I stayed living at the house I grew up in, in Dorchester, through all the, the hype of the new kids. Um, I didn't move out of that house till like, 93 or 94. So, um, I, you know, I was always the kind of, I always worked out and took care of my body, uh, played basketball, um, spent a lot of time in the studio, because from the beginning of the group I learned how to engineer and um, recorded a lot of the vocals on a lot of the records. And um, I just, you know, I try to, it was mostly when we weren't working, I was trying to work to learn as much as possible about the business, about engineering, production, songwriting, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my life still has always revolved around music. Right. Yeah, because I know you're like the buff one of the group, so I saw like in several videos you were pumping the iron, getting your diesel on, and all that good stuff, like, one, max out, two, max out, come on, Donnie, spot, oh. spot, Donnie, three. Nah, I, I, I just always, uh, I mean, I definitely have always lifted weights, but I'm not no big giant dude. I mean, I'm 162 pounds. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a big dude. All right. Yeah, you just wanted to keep yourself toned. Yeah. That, that's what's up. I, I can appreciate that, especially like with the pop, pop game. Now, I know the critics were basically lambasting you guys along with groups like Color Me Bad and all that, saying you guys are such a trend. And basically, they didn't know that teenagers basically run it. They're the ones that buy the records. Sure. I mean, everything goes in cycles. It's like right now, there's no real boy bands and there's, there's really nothing like that right now. But you give it a few years, it'll come right back around. I mean, a kind of little example is the whole phenomenon of that high school musical thing. It's like when my, my daughters are uh, eight and nine years old, like that's big with them because, you know, it's that, that teen kind of where you, you, you're so young, you kind of don't know what's good and what's not. And um, they, you know, it all goes in cycles. So there's, you know, and I honestly, for me, the only thing I ever cared about was when people accused us of something that was false, with like the lip syncing thing. I mean, if you either like, if you don't like us, what can I do about it? You know, you're gonna write what you're gonna write and say the things you want to say. And in the end, you know, I've lived a blessed life, so there's not. I don't really care what critics say. Right. Yeah, and definitely, definitely, Donnie made that known on the Games remix. Yeah. Yeah, he did, he definitely, you know, like I said before, we we weren't the kind of group that would take things sitting down. So he was he was like he was like the voice for the group and um nah, he didn't like that. He didn't like to be so harshly criticized. And you know, he was justified cuz it's in in the end it's music. And in the end we were a positive influence on a lot of kids, you know, in America where there was a lot of negativity. And um you know, we definitely, you know, we didn't deserve so much negative, you know, criticism as we got. And he was the one that stood up and, you know, voiced it. Right, because basically you guys kept it real. And that's what I believe made you guys so appealing, that you guys were just five regular kids singing and dancing and just being good, positive role models, man. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely agree with that. And uh, we, we, the one thing is the group, all the groups that came after that, after us, 
we had made all the mistakes. We we were already we had already created a blueprint um, for that for the groups that came after us. I mean, we followed what New Edition did, but we definitely took it to a different you know a different kind of pop level. Mm-hmm. And we had made all the mistakes, so the groups after us knew exactly what to do. You know, they they just had to follow. If you look at all the groups after us, they had the same makeup, the same kind of groups, the same kind of shows, and um, they basically followed, you know, what we did. Yeah, and that was going to lead me to my next question. How would you feel about the teen pop revival during the late 90s and early 2000s with Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees? Uh, I thought it was great. I mean, I'm especially like NSYNC, I, th- I really always thought NSYNC was a, a really... Um, you know, I still talk to some of those guys, so, like, I, I've always thought those, they were, like, really good guys and really doing it for the love of the music and performing, and, um, you know, I thought it was great. You know, I had no no issues with it until you heard some of, like, the Backstreet Boys saying negative things about us, and, you know, them guys, all they needed to be doing is saying, you know, the new kids paved the way for us, just like we said. New edition paved the way for us, and that was my only thing. Is you know, with some of the guys in, in Backstreet Boys, they should have just kept their mouth shut. Yeah. So basically, respect your roots. Yeah. Respect your roots. Respect. Don't act like you're in a different kind of group. They act like they were the Eagles, and they were just like us. Right, and also should be known too that Johnny Wright, who worked for you guys back in the day, he worked with Backstreet Boys and later went on to work with NSYNC. Oh, yeah. I mean, c- come on. It was like, if you went to see them, and, and all the people, our bodyguards, our assistants, all worked, sound men, everyone was working for them. So it wasn't like they reinvented the wheel. I mean, come on. You know, they, Johnny Wright started out with us, you know, driving a Winnebago, driving us around the country. He was a, our driver, you know what I mean? That's how he started with, you know, with us. And, um... You know, that's the only thing. You know, show some respect, mm-hmm. and then everything's all good. Yeah. Now, what was your take on the British group? Take that. They were the British equivalent to you guys, and were successful over in Europe, but couldn't quite crack it big over here in the states. They were all right. I think. I think. You know, the the only thing with them is, um, you know, when you're doing such a, 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 a when you're doing pop music like that, it's a little bit harder to crack over here if you're not from here. You know, because it, Americans are going to be like, well, we already got that here. We got our American groups that do that and do it better. So, you know, it, it, that's why, you know, I think it was so difficult for them. But, you know, I was recently over there in, in England working, and they they actually have done a new record, and record actually sounds good. And, you know, I never thought anything, but, you know, they you know they were all right with me. Right. Definitely, because... Um... I noticed that I was listening to Prey just recently. I'm like, great pop song. And if they would have released that over here, they possibly could have did a little something in the States. Which leads me to my next question. Why do you think it's much harder for pop acts to break over here than overseas? Because Bastry Boys and NSYNC had to go to Europe first before they broke back stateside. Well, that's the other thing that, you know, was the reason why I felt Backstreet Boys needed to respect us a little bit because we laid the groundwork in America and throughout the world for all these groups. Over there, it's a little more acceptable because it's just a wider open market. Like, not now, but back then, like, hip-hop wasn't as big overseas as it was in America. 
So there's uh-huh. less kind of music, less different genres of music you were competing with over there. And pop was like the main genre of music, you know. So I think I think for them, them group, those groups were started by Johnny Wright and Lou Pearlman. And I think they had a vision, let's break them in Europe first, where it's a little bit easier. People accept this pop sound easier and then bring it to America. And they had different versions of their albums, from the European version to when they finally released it in America, they went and recorded new songs and kept some of the old songs and did new videos. I mean, if you saw some of the first NSYNC videos that were released over in in Europe, we never saw them over here. I saw them. But, like, they were really, really cheesy. Uh-huh. And them guys would be the first to tell tell you, wow, you know, thank God that video didn't come out in America. Right, because I saw the I Want You Back video, the European version. I'm like, ugh, this is just god-awful. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the one with all the tight shirts on? Yeah, there was, like, in a spaceship or something? I was actually at that video shoot. For real? Yeah, I met them. I met them. The first time I met them was there at that video shoot. And at first I walked in and I was like, yo, what? is this with these dudes with the tight shirts on in the spaceship? But then I met them, and I met their their moms and all this stuff, and they were really, you know, a bunch of genuine guys. And, you know, that's why I definitely show them some respect. Right. Coming off of games, all right, you guys took a little break, and then, like, around 93, you guys went and worked on the Face the Music album, which I believe was your guys' best album. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you... I mean, you guys had Teddy Riley and big name R&B producers, and basically, I just felt like it was—it's an underrated album. It was just the wrong climate when it came out. Uh, you know, absolutely uh, the wrong climate. We took too long to record it. it took two years to record it. Um, when you're riding the wave, the pop wave, you gotta ride it and keep feeding people, or the wave crashes and it's over and that's what happened with us you know we took too long to record that last album and we missed that last bit of the wave right you know and it definitely became a different climate with grunge and you know people always say grunge grunge but it was also hip-hop too hip-hop started really you know um taking off and those a lot of those guys in the 90s you know now created what you see in hip-hop which is the superstars are in hip-hop there's not really hardly any pop superstars there's more hip-hop superstars than pop superstars so it's like you might have your justin timberlake but you got you know 10 hip-hop superstars you could name that are huge so it's like the, the the climate changed and you know it was the wrong time and and that was the end of the group. Right. I just, like I said, I felt like under it was an underrated album. Some of my favorite cuts off of the album were Girls, which was produced by Teddy. Um, You Got the Flavor, which I'm surprised that Coca-Cola or Soda Company didn't pick that song up and use it as the tagline. Like, Coke's got the flavor. I, I'm sure they would have if it would have been a few years earlier. They would have picked it up. Right. But it, it's all about that wave, man. And we were up against it, you know. We had our own record company not believing in us anymore. I mean, they released, uh, about a year before that album came out, they released a single called If You Go Away, uh-huh. which was a song that I heard in Donnie Einer's office 
and said, we got to, it was just me in there, and I said, we got to record this. And they released it without a video just to see if we still had it, and the song went top ten with no video, no promotion, no nothing. And, but it, we just didn't complete the album fast enough, and there were internal things within the company, and I really felt like they were done with us. You know what I mean? Like, it was getting too hard to... to um, it was getting too hard to fight through all the negative, the neg- the, the backlash. Mm-hmm. And I, I really felt like they were like, look, let's move on to something else. Right. Was the backlash the reason for the guy, for you guys shortening the name to NKOTB? I think that it, the, the reason for that, that, that came from the record company, and we were cool with it. And I think it was, it was trying to, because new kids on the block, it was trying to, like, make it a more mature thing. And to me, it didn't matter. We are what we are. We can change the name to whatever you want, but people are still going to call us New Kids on the Block. So right. It didn't really make any difference. Okay, now explain the period where Face the Music is done and it's back to ground zero being normal, quote-unquote normal. Well, for me, the transition wasn't that hard because I had had a son um, and I was a single dad and I was, you know, kind of content with just, you know, really raising him and, you know, doing my production work and uh, trying to move on to that. It was a little frustrating um, in the end, we could have done like a, a last tour and, um, you know, went and gave the fans that last chance to see us. And that will always kind of stick with me that we didn't do that because uh, there's still fans out there now still wanting us to get back together and do it. And at least we could have gave them that farewell tour and we never did. And we still haven't done anything all together as a unit. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a little disappointing. Yep, because I know everybody's basically been um, doing well after New Kids. Joey, of course, doing music along with Jordan. Donnie has followed the footsteps of his brother Mark, who went by Marky Mark at one point in time. Kids, mm-hmm. don't ask him about that in the interview because he may get upset about that. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, you doing your thing, and John is up there doing real estate. Now, I noticed that in the e trial story, John was saying how back in the day he used to have stage fright he never had no stage fright he never had no I, 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 all the years i toured with him i never witnessed him having any more nervousness than any one of us uh-huh. and when you get to the point when you're doing big shows and the people are there to see you you get a little you get more excited to get up on stage and there's not no pressure because everyone's there paid to see you Mm-hmm. So, I never witnessed any of that. That's all I can really say. I never witnessed any stage fright. Stage fright is like you got to be dragged out there and put on stage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I never witnessed any of that. Okay, what was your most memorable show with the group? Uh, we did a show in Chile, and it was for Amnesty International, and we did it in a stadium where they had tortured and killed, you know, thousands of people. And there was over 100,000 kids there singing every word to all our songs, and they had no way to buy our records. Our records weren't even for sale in that country. And it was just one of the most amazing things, especially before, you know, the Internet craze and everything. 
where you could be in another country and hear any music you want to. Um, you know, for me, that was the most uh, amazing experience. Mm. And by you guys being good role models, you were also telling kids stay away from drugs, um, stay in school, and you guys did a lot of charity work. You donated a lot of money and did telethons for United Cerebral Palsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was like a really great experience. To um, That was even from before we were having success. We were doing the telethons and, um, you know, just just really a lot of a lot of things that I'm proud of was like a lot of the things like that and the charity work we did and the people we touched like that. Okay. Now, I want to set the record straight on this question. Maurice wasn't really like a Swangali. He wasn't telling you guys what to wear, how to sing, and all of that stuff that normally most creators of groups like that do. No. I mean, basically, he was the in-studio guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in the studio, and in the studio... You know, then it, it was still a collaboration. I mean, obviously he wrote the songs, but it wasn't like he was like, look, you do it my way or nothing. We had started with Maurice, and it was like a family. And with our shows, we did what we wanted to do. We wore what we wanted to wear. There were certain incidents where the record company would get involved and, you know, for album covers or whatever, but for the most part, no. Nah. I mean, there was no one really, you know, dictating what we did on an everyday basis. Right, and um, my first experience of the New Kids phenomenon, it was back when I was five years old. I know I'm revealing my age by saying this, but I remember the cartoon right. that you guys had out, and they were saying how you guys had to record your voices so that the people portraying you guys on the cartoon could get your Boston accents. Yeah, they didn't do too good a job. I mean, Boston accent is not the easiest accent to, to duplicate. <laughs> but... um. You know, the the cartoon was just one season. It's you know like a fun thing. It's you know, I'm 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 glad we did it because I have it. My kids could look at it and know, hey, my dad had a cartoon at one time. Right. But, you know, other than that, it really wasn't like the the best part of being in the group. Right. Yeah, and I know outside of the group, you guys are very big Boston sports fans. Celtics, Sox, I know you guys were rejoicing during that period when Bird was beating Magic in the NBA Finals and all of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I still hate the Lakers. Hey, who doesn't? I hate the Yankees. I hate the Lakers. I hate the New York Jets. I live in Miami. I hate the Dolphins. (laughs) I mean, I'm a Patriot. Anything Boston, we believe it. Ah, yeah, because I know you guys were rejoicing when the Sox finally won that World Series. Rejoicing? They're grown men in tears. <laughs> that was me. Wow. And I was with one of my best friends who was a New York Mets fan in Uh-oh. 1986. You know, there's a lot of history. With Buckner. That. Yeah, Bill Buckner, the Red Sox lost to the, to, the, to the Mets. And, you know, he was happy for me. You know, he was, he was you know, really happy for me. And uh, there was some tears. Right, and by you being from Boston, how'd you feel about the Celtics not having the ping pong ball going their way in the draft? Because in 97, they could have got Tim Duncan, but the ping pong ball didn't go their way that year neither. Why you got to bring that up? Man, I just, I just want to know, do you think Boston would ever not not really you know, relive the glory days of Russell, Bird, Parrish, but will Boston ever you know, go to the playoffs and you know, continue to grow? What it looks like right now, mm-hmm. it, I'm probably going to be, you know, old and gray by the time they do the right thing and, and really build this team right. But that's, 
the, the thing the thing is this goes back to they had Len Bias die on them, Reggie Lewis die. You know, this it's been a a lot of bad luck since, you know, Burr retired with the Celtics. Uh-huh. And when we didn't get Tim Duncan, I mean I was crushed. Then this year I'm like, Look, man, we it was like a thirty eight percent chance for the one or the two pick. But what can you do, man? That's the rules of the NBA where the ping pong ball bounces. What are you going to do? I mean, I don't see them being successful within the next decade. Wow. Because they got to completely rebuild. Uh-huh. And Paul Pierce is, you know, and Jefferson is their two best players. But Paul Pierce is going to start getting a little bit older. And he'll just have a few more years. And then what do you do? Yeah, what what can you do? So Danny Ainge, if you're listening, rebuild the Celtics because Danny Wood wants to see a winner represent from the Bean Town. But let I got nothing to complain about. We okay. got we got the Red Sox and we got the Patriots. So believe me, I, I I ain't got nothing to complain about. Right, and look on the bright side. I got the Patriots as my lock to win the Super Bowl this year. I mean Brady the Moss yeah. all day long. It's looking good. It's looking good. I mean Boston, you know is one of the best sports towns in the country. So I got nothing to complain about at all. Right. So um, basically, like, up in Boston, it's like the Yankees and Red Sox series. It's like you're either a Yankees fan or you're a Mets fan, as opposed to, like, it's kind of like down south where Carolina and Duke is, like, the big rivalry. Yeah. I mean, the, the Red Sox-Yankees is, like, the most intense rivalry that I've ever seen. I have one friend down here in Miami who, you know, he grew up in New York, and he's a Yankees fan, and me and him go at it. And uh, this year they really stink, so I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I am too. I, I, I just don't like the Yankees. I mean, I couldn't play for Steinbrenner because, you know, no facial hair, and Roger Clements, has he starts in triple-A ball and gets to take breaks. I'm like, shoot. You could, pay, you, you could play for the right price. Yeah, I'll shave anything if, if for the right price. If how much money as they make, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I know what you're saying. It's like they've. I think their philosophy, even though the Red Sox are not far behind, mm-hmm. but their philosophy has backfired on them because when they were winning World Series in the '90s up to 2000, they always had them hard-nosed, tough role players, and now it just seems like everyone on the team. Is a is a is a superstar, mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's backfired for them. I mean, the Red Sox still have you know them guys on there that are like role players, and you know definitely still you can definitely there's there's a definite com- camaraderie you see with them. But the Yankees, I think their philosophy of spending, spending, spending has just kind of backfired on them in the past few years. Right, definitely. And I know, like, when the Patriots dynasty was coming about, when the Patriots won their first Super Bowl, I know you guys are like, thank God we don't have to remember that we was on the wrong side of the Super Bowl shuffle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, um, that's, in 86 was, uh, was not good. <laughs> that was not good. But, you know, it, it now it's like we, they got three Super Bowls, so that's all forgotten. Yeah, that's definitely long gone and will be seen on NFL films along with the frozen tundra in the fall game. Now, explain to me the whole bands reunited thing on VH1. Um, well, basically, it's kind of, I, The whole thing with the new kids on the block is we haven't done anything 
together um, yet, you know. So for me, when anyone comes to me, you know, saying, do you want to do this TV show about the group or whatever, I always say no. Mm-hmm. Because if we're going to do anything together, it's going to be on our own terms and in our own control. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten a lot of negative feedback from a lot of the fans, like, why didn't you do that? But there's a couple things. First of all, like, me and Donnie have always had, like, a pact that, look, we won't do anything like that, you know, unless we're going to do it together. Right. And that's number one. Mm-hmm. And Joe, too, like, I've talked to Joe about that. Then also, Bands Reunited, if you look at some of the bands that are on that show. They were kind of like C-list. C-list. D-E-F-list. <laughs> they had the Flock of Seagulls on there. That dude, the drummer in Flock of Seagulls, was the electrician at my house here in Miami. For real? Yeah. Wow. Falling on hard times. Where are they now? Well, he's doing all right. He got his own little business. He's all right. But uh-huh. it's like, they, what do you expect? They only had a few hits, so... I didn't, that show, I never wanted to be classified with those groups on that show. Mm-hmm. That's bottom line. Right, and definitely hearing it from you, great move, because I know Jordan and John said yes to it, but you, Donnie, and Joe all declined to do it, and come to think about it, great move. Now, I know all the fans out there, no, 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 before I go into that, I've heard, you can correct me on this, I had heard that back in 99 at the MTV VMAs, this was back during the teen pop phenomenon, the second generation was big, that they were trying to get you guys to perform at that show. Yeah, they were. What happened with that? I don't know. I honestly, I don't know what happened. I said yes. Um, I think mostly everyone in the group said yes. And I think what happened is by the time they got everything starting to get towards being organized Uh what we were going to do it was too late it's really hard with the five of us with families work everyone doing different stuff to get everybody on the same page right and um it was when they first contacted us it was like two weeks or three weeks until the show so it was already late in the game but I honestly don't remember what the final thing was to not do it. Mm-hmm. All I just I heard from someone, we're not, we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do it. Right. Now, I know all the fans want to know this. Would there ever be a chance that new kids would basically do like one night only a performance with all five or, or something? Because I know the international fans and the fans over here, they, they just want to see, see you guys one last time and just close that book and be like bam we did it well i think if 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 we're gonna do it there would have to be a larger plan than a one night only Mm -hmm. i think we would want to do it where we really give the fans what they deserve which would be probably like re-recording the songs maybe doing a few new songs um maybe it's a vegas thing maybe it's a world tour Something, but for us, I think there would have to be, you know, a plan, mm-hmm. someone to help us implement the plan, mm-hmm. you know, like a heavy hitter in the music business to implement the plan and do it that way. I don't see any other way we'll get back together. Right. Otherwise. Right, because if you guys were to get back together, I'm telling you, if you guys were to go on a tour, tell you, packed house, because you know you guys still have a hardcore fan base out there. Yeah, I mean, it exists. It's there. You know, it's there for the taking. 
it's just a matter of, you know, when you got five guys, like I said earlier, all doing different things, it's a matter of getting, you know, somebody to really organize it and 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 to be the point man to make it to make it real. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's just I, you, at this moment, there's nothing. Uh, there's it's not happening. Uh-huh. You know, I haven't I haven't got any calls about anything like that. So at this moment, it's not happening. But I'll be the first one to say, yeah. I'll be the first one to definitely say I do it. So basically, people, don't hold your breath and never say never. It's right there, bro. It's like, you know, it could happen, but it could not happen. Right, because I know um, Take That, they have reformed. Mine is Robbie Williams, and they've been going on tours over in Europe, and they're just selling out and new album and stuff like that. And I'm like, hmm. I know. I was over there, you know, when during it. You know, I was working over there for like four months, and... um made me think, you know, if these guys could do it, you know, because we definitely were a lot bigger than them. Like, we could do it, but, you know, it's one thing to say it and to see another group do it and then to to go and do it yourself. Right. Um, what was your take on the New Jack Swing era and that whole pop R&B period of the late 80s and early to mid-90s? Uh, well, obviously it had a lot of influence on us, and, um, you know, I just... Now looking back, when you look back to the 80s, late 80s, mid 80s, early 90s, it's a really a lot of good music, and it's a shame because we're kind of losing a lot of that in the music business, as far as pop, R&B, um, you know, especially in pop more so. We're losing a lot of that with this really good pop music out there, and it, you know, it's a little bit of shame because I kind of think what are my kids going to have to remember like I did at their age? And honestly, they're not going to have a lot to remember because they're listening to old stuff that I've shown them. Like, my son loves Eric B. and Rakim. Wow. You know, but that's because I, I play it for him. Uh-huh. And he can recite every lyric on the whole Greatest Hits album. So, you know... You know, the same with, like, Biggie Smalls and, you know, you know a lot of the, the, you know, my sons are fans of, like, U2 and groups that are more older than a lot of these groups now that just have kind of one or two hits and then that's it. Right. I definitely commend you for having your son learn the words to Eric B. and Rakim's The Greatest Hits. You're definitely doing your job and exposing them to good music. Well, I think the thing is, the best music, you know, like, especially in, I mean, my sons, they know from the beginning, they know Africa Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force, and, you know, I've played all that stuff for them. So they can go all the way back. And I think you have to, if you're a fan of something, you can't be ignorant to how it started. So, you know, it's their choice to what they're going to listen to, you know, on a regular basis. And my, my kids tend to listen to the older stuff. You know, and and I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I'm a musician, so I definitely want to educate them. Right, definitely. And I, I noticed back in the Call It What You Want video, when you was taking pictures with the fans, you were rocking a BBD t-shirt. Oh, yeah. I mean, standard. They, they, that, like I said before, you know, New Edition, BBD, Bobby Brown, you know, uh, Ralph Tresvant, those, those guys, you know, were our inspiration growing up. Mm-hmm. 
and I believe back in that period, if you guys would have went on to, let's see, new, you had New Kids, BBD, and Bobby Brown had y'all went on to, money, 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 oh, money. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that definitely would have been something special. I mean, for me, that would have been, like, the experience of a lifetime. Mm. You know, guys, still, to, you know, for me, I, I, I saw them do a show a few years ago, a couple years ago. They reunited and everything, and they, they're just great entertainers. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And um, I want to know, how did you, how do you feel about the impact you guys and New Edition has had on the pop and R&B industry? Because both of you guys came from a restar and paved the way for two generations worth of pop and R&B groups. Um, well, I feel, I feel blessed to have been in that position, you know. And I think uh, New Edition, even now, like still in the R&B market, they are like. They, 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 like they're gonna exist forever in the R&B market because you even see groups now, they still model themselves after those guys. Uh-huh. Like the pop market, that's a wave that goes up and down, up and down. But R&B is consistent because it's that's the bed of pop music anyway. Uh-huh. So you know they they're gonna live on forever, and to me they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because all these groups are still you know emulating them. The solo artists, you know, emulate Bobby Brown, you know, and there's even a lot of groups that go the more hip-hop route that are singing, and they, you know, it's like emulating Belle Biv DeVoe. So it's like those guys are going to go on forever. Definitely, definitely. Now, um, did you ever listen to the R&B group Troop? Oh, yeah. All right, what was your take on Troop? What's that, uh, Spread My Wings? Yes. Uh, they were great, man. They were a great vocal group, and live, they were incredible. I remember seeing them, I think we did a show with them once. You guys did a show with Troop? I'm pretty sure. Either we did a show or I was at the show in, no, I think I was at the show in Boston. <clears throat> and I was like, whoa, man, these guys just like were flipping in the air, and the dance routines they were doing were almost to another level. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Of um, what even what New Edition did, mm-hmm. I thought they were incredible, incredible group. Wow, that's definitely a lot coming from you giving Troop their respect. I interviewed Steve Russell a while back, and that was like a big interview for me because basically, even though I'm 21, I grew up during that time period of like New Edition doing Heartbreak, Bobby Brown with Don't Be Cruel, High Five, Color Me Bad, and all that. So you know what I mean, and just basically seeing the phenomenon that you guys did, it just made me go back to a more innocent time. Yeah, it's it, it's a strange thing, you know. Even for me, when I, you know, and I'm on my iPod and I'm listening to New Edition and, um, you know, some of that that older stuff. I mean, the other day I was downloading Surface. Wow. You know, because I had listened to them, you know, when I was young, and I'm, you know, and they were label mates of ours, and um, so it just, you know, it definitely there's a definite feeling than a lot of what you get these days. And um, it's a strange thing. I'm just, I feel lucky that I am a musician and I know to educate my kids and expose them to all different kind of music. And, you know, it, but it's also a little disheartening to know, you know, what what are they going to have to remember, you know, when they're older as far as, you know, groups that they're looking up to. Right. Now, do, do have they ever seen or listened to the new kid stuff? Um, I got, you know, I got the videos on my my um my computer and 
uh, they they've seen it, but it's not really a big deal in my house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not honestly. My kids are more into like the music I do now, and you know they just they just think like you know I'm a songwriter and my dad's a musician and it really hasn't been a big deal. You know, my daughters are eight, nine years old. They kind of look at it and they think it's funny with the hairdos and the clothes. Yeah, yeah, you had the rat tail. Oh, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And um, they think it's funny, you know, more than anything. Right. Now, do you still keep in touch with the other guys in the group or anybody else from the New Kids Camp? Yeah, I mean, we keep in touch through emails. And, you know, I talk to Donnie, you know, uh, a couple times a month just to check in. Um, but, you know, everyone has their own lives and kids and families and married or divorced or whatever. And, you know, we kind of all do our own things but keep in touch. And this, it's definitely like, you know, we're brothers no matter what. But we've definitely all grown, you know, in our own ways. Right. So what are you doing now? Well, I've been, you know, I've been writing. And in 2003, I had a solo record out which was released here but didn't do well, but it, it was released in Germany and did well. And it's more of a pop kind of rock thing. And then over the last summer in the fall, I was doing a whole reality show with a band over in Europe, over in England. Upper Street? Yeah, I was doing an Upper Street project where they put uh, five, four, guys, four British guys from other famous bands over there with me all together and made a new band and it was the I had the time of my life right like I just had an incredible experience you know wrote with one of the guys wrote the single in the b-side over there and um it was just amazing and while I was over there I just you know wrote a lot of songs picking up the guitar so right now I'm, I'm finishing an acoustic record and getting a lot of songs placed on a lot of TV shows on MTV, the Oxygen Network, and just right now that's what I'm doing. I'm writing, and and hopefully in uh, 2008 I'll release like you know a full record with the band, and and just keep doing the same thing. Right, because I know with Upper Street it was uh, one guy from the British group 911, one guy from the pop group Steps, and Bradley, the the guy from S Club Seven. Yeah, and there was another guy from. Um, this group called Another Level. Oh, the group that did Alone No More and they covered Silks Freak Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, Freak Me, we we did in our live show when I was in Upper Street. So that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but really talented guys. And the show was nothing like you see over here. It wasn't like, you know, everyone crying and moaning. It, it was, it was, it ended up being four guys because we fired the guy from Steps because he couldn't sing or dance <laughs> or write or anything. So basically but he was just there? He was just there, but he was gone quick. He was gone within two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, you know, four guys, like, having a blast, trying to make the best music we possibly could, and the show's hilarious, got some drama. I'm really proud of it. You know, I went over there blind, because I've turned down every reality show in America. All the VH1 shows, I won't do anything here because I'm not going to subject my kids to being on a show that's going to degrade me. Right. You know what I mean? It'll make me look bad. And, you know, I figured, look, no one will see it over there if it's bad. Right. 
and and it ended up being great. So you know, it was a great experience for me. Mm-hmm. Now, what was your take when you um saw Jordan on The Surreal Life? Oh uh, man, that show is kind of like the last. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like almost saying goodbye to your career. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's only a few people that come out of those shows on the positive side, like Flavor Flav. <laughs> you know, but that's him. That's just because he was him. Right. And no one has ever really known what a character that guy is. We hung out with him a lot. So I've always known he's like a great dude, like that funny and a character. But America didn't know that. Right. They just knew he was this dude in Public Enemy. So, you know, it those shows can be really, you know, it that, that's a tough decision to make, man. I mean, for me, it's easy because VH1 does a lot of shows like that, and MTV does too, where it just kind of harps on humiliation. Right. And you know that show is like that they're putting you know a bunch of people that are kind of washed up on a show together and all hopes to revive their career Mm -hmm. and if you don't end up on the positive side of things you know it can work against you so for me i would rather just say no Mm -hmm. and uh you know move on to the next thing true now i know vh1 they're doing another show similar similar to what you did overseas called Man Band, where they have Chris from NSYNC, Jeff from 98 Degrees, uh, Rich from LFO, and Brian from Color Me Bad. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm friends with Rich and Chris, so I, I have been talking to them the whole way through the project. And, uh, you know, I, I, the lineup of the guys that I was with over in England was definitely a different... I mean, Dane Bowers from the group um, Another Level over in England is like an incredible singer. He's an incredible talent. So for me, you know, it's a different thing. You know, the, the, that's like, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> right. I mean, I've already heard all about it, so I know what it's going to be. I already know what they've done, and I heard some of the music, and, you know. Is it good? I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. I think there's gonna it's gonna be, but because of you know the car crash elements. But I told Chris and Rich that before they you know started doing it, that they probably would, because Chris is a really good guy, and Rich has been one of my best friends for years. And Rich just you know he's he was he's recovering from leukemia. Mm-hmm. You know I told them both, you guys will probably be okay. You know, I don't think it's going to be negative for you guys. Um, the other two guys, I don't know. Uh, I know there was definitely a lot of talk about the guy from um, Calling Me Bad um, being involved in a bit of the drama on the show. So I think it's just going to be uh, interesting. Right. And speaking of Calling Me Bad, what was your take on them? Because, you know, they were out around the same time. They came out in 91. Mm-hmm. I want to sex you up blew up and you guys were still having your your success for your phenomenon so what was your take on color me bad uh i mean obviously that was a great tune you know what i mean but beyond that there wasn't much more success they had so i think they had like one or two other songs that did well and they kind of came and went right so it was like 
why they were there, they was cool, and it, you know, I, I thought the music was good, but then it was gone pretty fast, so it's kind of one of them things, you know. Right, and you're in Miami now, right? Yeah. Okay, now, Orlando was basically the site for the second generation of teen pop, of the teen pop phenomenon, so what was your take on Lou Perman basically taking this cue from what Maurice did? Because how I heard he created Bastry Boys was that he rented a plane to you guys, and he saw what you guys were doing. It was like, hmm, okay, five guys, sing, dance, let me try it. I mean, obviously the dude's smart businessman, you know, as far as that goes. I mean, um, I don't know if you've heard or read now, but his whole empire has crumbled around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard about some shady stuff about Lou Perman. Because yeah, NSYNC and Bastry Boys with the contracts and all of that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot. I mean, that's just not how you do business. So as far as him building it up, he's genius. But the way he built it up obviously, you know, goes against all ethics. You know, he obviously didn't have much. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, at the time I thought it was incredible that he could do it with not just one group but two groups, and also had Britney Spears in one of the groups. He had a girls' group she was in. Innocence. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, obviously the guy definitely had an eye for talent, you know, but you got to build it up the right way. There's enough money to go around, and there's, I mean, especially when the groups get like that. There's plenty to go around, and, you know, no one needs to be that greedy. Right. Now, with Maurice, like, I saw in New Editions Behind the Music that there was they were accusing Maurice of um, taking New Edition's money. Now, set the record straight on this. Did any financial stuff like that happen? The only thing that ever happened between us and Maurice is that he got paid what he was contracted to be paid. Mm -hmm. So Maurice never stole any money from us, never mm -hmm. did anything unethical. Uh, I, can't say, I can't say anything bad about Maurice aside from him wearing that general suit. Yeah, I was about to ask I you that. To knock him out, but other than that, <laughs> right? It was at that point where he got kind of full of himself. Like, yo, I didn't create a new edition, new kids. I can make anybody star. Come on down to the mall, do a video in the um video for your song booth, and I'll make you a star today. Yeah, that was tough times because I was really hurt because he was basically saying we weren't talented, and um, you know, just the training we went through and how we came up spoke for itself, and uh, I let him know all along the way what an idiot he was, and he tried to make some other groups famous, he tried to do this dude Rick West, be the next Elvis, and the kid couldn't even sing. Tommy Page? Well, he wasn't involved with Tommy Page. Tommy Page, Tommy Page actually had a successful record, mm -hmm. and then me and Jordan actually wrote a couple records for him. Mm -hmm. So that was a different thing, but he had this kid Rick West. Now, I don't even think that was his real name, but he said he was going to be the next Elvis and he was going to sell more records than us. Wow. And uh, obviously, he didn't do anything. Wow. But that was a tough period where uh, I tell everyone all along the way, even people now, money and fame affects everybody differently. And for me, I stayed living in my house, surrounded by my family, and it kept me grounded. Mm -hmm. For other people... It, it does different things. So right. That just is going to happen along the way, and you're going to lose friends, and, you know, you got to deal with things day to day. Mm -hmm. I was about to ask you that. What 
made you guys so successful after New Kids? Because, you know, most child stars, they don't have that same luck of um, finding, you know, peace and stuff. And they do drugs and some of them end up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think family, you know, all of us had good family roots and were brought up well. And um, we were also surrounded, at least like on the business side of things, we had good financial advisors. And, I, I, you know, I, I think uh, aside from all of that, we were lucky, too. You know, we had a little luck involved. None of us got into drugs. And, um, you know, we always avoided that when we were out there on the road and partying and stuff. We would have our parties, but no one was doing any drugs. Uh, we grew up, too, in Boston when crack was <laughs> blowing up. During the crack epidemic. Yeah, and we had friends go down to, to that drug, you know, basically that was their life was crack, and we were all scared of drugs at that point. Right. So, you know, seeing it in your face definitely does something to you. And we just, we made choices along the way just not to do it, and it's carried on into our adult life, and now we teach it to our kids. Right. That's that's definitely um a, a good thing. De- definitely a good thing. Now, out of all the songs new kids have done, what is your favorite new kid song and why? Uh, my favorite song is If You Go Away. It's actually, um, you know, it's on Face the Music. and It's actually a song that I, that when I do my acoustic shows around the country, I incorporate that song in my live set. So okay. That's my favorite. Mm, yeah, actually, um, I have a couple of favorites. See, Please Don't Go Girl is, of course, one of my favorites. Right Stuff. Hot record. I, I admit it. I played it on my show last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I played right stuff on my show last week. I was like, hey, let me go ahead and play that. Let me see. Dirty Dog. That was a, that was a good single. Yeah. Um, Never Let You Go. Underrated track. Definitely, definitely a hot track. It definitely sounded something that would have been on Blackstreet's first record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Teddy produced it, so, you know. It's def- definitely a great record, though. Mm, it just goes to show you that you guys were listening to R&B and hip-hop doing that whole step-by-step period. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we grew up on. You know, I mean, there's, there's never, even to this day, you know, it's still a lot of what I listen to is hip-hop and R&B. So, um, you know, that's that's just our roots. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for anybody that's trying to get into the music business? Um, I think my, the the best thing I could tell anyone trying to get into the music business is be as self-contained as possible, which means if you're going to be a singer, pick up an instrument, learn how to write, <laughs> learn everything you possibly can about the songwriting and production end of things, because these days when you play a demo, you can't play a demo anymore with just like you singing in the piano. You gotta have the song almost sounding like it's ready for radio. It's it's kinda just the way it is with, with home home studios and how easy it is to to do things at home now. Um, you gotta be as self contained as possible and surround yourself with good people, you know. You gotta it, it's horrible to say, but you gotta have a good lawyer. Um, you know you gotta you gotta always be trying to connect with with people you know right people within the business right now 
the tag of being a teen idol, does that kind of like bother you? Like, ugh, I'm, I'm a teen idol. You know, I had posters on walls and just about any and everything under the sun. And it's like, I just want to be Danny Wood and basically... You know, some child stars, they like to escape their past. Like, um, Ricky Shoulder from Silver Spoons like to be called Rick. Joey Lawrence from Blossom likes to be called Joe Lawrence. It Was there ever a point where it's like, man, I just want to, you know, be just Danny Wood and not just known as, you know, Danny Wood from um, New Kids on the Block? That'll never happen, so I'm not even going to think that. I mean, it, that's just the way it is. And why am I going to complain about that? I, I was blessed. It was like getting a winning lottery ticket mm-hmm. you know what i mean like i'm not going to complain about that and none of us no matter what we do and how successful we are in anything we do is going to be known other than danny wood from nukas on the block joey mcintyre from nukas on the block donnie Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's just it was too big yeah definitely definitely cause... so for me i embrace it and the important thing is in my house I'm dad. I'm pops. So right. <laughs> that's that's really what's important in life. Right. To your kids, you're not the you're not the guy with the rat tail and with the doll and all that. You're just plain old dad, taking them to school, doing dad things. Nah, um, they they don't even connect the two. They 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 definitely don't connect me with new kids on the block. They connect me with being a songwriter and a musician, mm-hmm. but they don't. They, that's it was too long ago for them, you know. Right. I mean, my son is 14, so you know, even he was like a little little kid when we were doing our last leg of the tour. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even register. Right, because I'm sure there was a whole bunch of guys in America during that period. Like, damn, if I could just be just one of them and get all the girlies and basically just be on top of the world. Yeah, man. I mean, come on. I, I would never change anything, you know, anything about it, because who, you know, uh, I, w- I have the time of my life. It's led me on to other experiences in this past summer and fall. I just got to be a rock star all over again <laughs> over in England. So it's, you know, it, it's just incredible, mm-hmm. you know, what being in the new kids has, has, you know, given me. Right. And um, by you doing your shows, you still have a lot of, like, old new kids fans still bringing their memorabilia, like dolls and wearing the old tour T-shirts and all of that. Yeah, yeah. They, the girls come around with some of the old stuff, but it's actually led to us r- recently doing a, a new merchandise deal with this company called Junk Food Clothing. Mm-hmm. And their T-shirts are retro T-shirts and a lot of um, places like Urban Outfitters and, Saxith Avenue, and there's gonna be some new kid shirts. Wow, coming out, and this will be this will actually be the first thing we've done together. Even even though it's just T-shirts as a group, you know, and since we broke up. Wow, wow. So new kid shirts are coming, people. So go ahead and rock that, cause I admit I will rock me a new kid's T-shirt. Give me give me the shirt and a fit it. It's a wrap, but what I really want to do with a t-shirt, have a shirt, like one half of new kids on one side, and one half of new edition on one side, and on the back, put respect your roots. Yeah, man, I mean, definitely, definitely true. You know, the thing is, too, like, uh, that's why I keep mentioning groups like NSYNC, because they do respect their roots. Like, I was having dinner with Chris Kirkpatrick from NSYNC, you know, about a month ago, and that's all he was saying was, like, you know, you guys were everything to us. 
And that's what I would say about new edition. And I think sometimes that's what, you know, these these new artists and sometimes tend to forget. You know, there's so many groups that have paved the way for them. That Some of them remember, though. Some of them show a lot of respect for, you know, the groups that paved the way. But a lot of them, you know, just it's all about, you know, what kind of car they're driving and how much bling they got and all that. And, you know, there's much more important things than that. Right. Now, when it's all said and done, how do you want Danny Wood to be remembered? Um, I mean, I want to be remembered as being a good dad. I mean, honestly, that's the first thing I would say. Mm -hmm. That's really what's important to me. Um, anything else after that is just like secondary you know the the music and all of that is all secondary compared to that as far as in the music business i just you know want to be remembered as part of the new kids on the block you know one of the biggest pop groups that there were at the time definitely definitely because like from 88 to like around 92 i mean you guys were like like i said everywhere magazines dolls tv shows you guys definitely placed your stamp on the pop industry yeah, and you know, looking back, you know, we had our run, and it's like most groups now don't even have that long of a period of time where they're, where they're having uh, success. So, you know, I feel blessed. Mm. I feel blessed that we, you know, that, that that we had the success we had. Right. Now, um, well, now I know a couple of months ago, um, Dick Scott had passed away. Yes. Now, I know... Dick was very close to all of you guys, so, you know, that must have hit pretty hard. Yeah, it was very upsetting, and especially for me, I was over in, in, in London, you know, and I was contracted over there to, to be doing the show, and I, I couldn't I couldn't make it back. You know, there was no way I could get, get out of, you know, doing what I was doing over there. So, yeah, you know, his passing was very sad, and um, he had struggled with, you know, his heart condition, for years, even since we were in the, the group, mm-hmm. and um, you know, he definitely will be missed. Right, R.I.P. Dick Scott. Now, what's Biscuit up to? Your body, the former bodyguard of New Kids. Your guess is as good as mine. Don't. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, cause I looked on YouTube and somebody posted a video. Biscuits in the house. Yeah, he had a single out. Biscuits in the house for a little bit. He, he was doing his thing. Yeah, because in the video he had on, uh, like, the Bobby Brown jacket, like, in Every Little Step. Mm-hmm. And um, I just couldn't help but laugh. Hey, at that point, everyone was trying to, trying to, you know, get on and to, to, to do, to, to, to ride the coattails. You know what right. I mean? So, uh, yeah, you know, we had bodyguards becoming famous. Maurice had, you know. His son was in a group. Perfect gentleman. Yeah, you know, it, everyone was kind of riding the coattails. Mm-hmm. And then Mark came in, did his thing as Marky Mark with good vibrations and, and all that. He basically blew up. And then, of course, he did the Calvin Klein thing. And basically, he distanced, him, distanced himself from that period. And he basically went on to act in a bunch of great movies and boogie nights and things of that nature. So explain to me, how was it seeing Mark go from Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch to Mark Wahlberg, the distinguished actor? Well, he did it off of his talent, obviously. I mean, you can't get nominated for an Oscar and not be talented. I mean, 
the the guy just you know took his opportunities. What happened with Mark is Donnie made that record for him and said, "I'm gonna make my brother famous." Did that, but then Mark took the opportunity and you know basically busted down doors in Hollywood. <laughs> and the guy's super talented. I mean, he's basically good in everything he does, and. It's not even that he separated himself from being Marky Margaret. It's that the success he's had as an actor now makes what he did music. No one even really talks about what he did musically because he's so big as an actor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the guy is just incredibly talented. Right, definitely. Um, do you have any shout-outs before we conclude this interview? Uh, no, I think I've mentioned everybody in the interview, so... Uh, no, I'm good. Okay, and this is coming from me. I'm only 21 years old. Got to experience the new kids phenomenon second turn around during the um, late 90s. This was like, Hanging Tough was out of print. I had went to go look for the cassette tape, and I went to a record store, and I asked my mom, do you have Hanging Tough New Kids on the Block? And she looked at me like, you're crazy. This was before Jordan and Joey came out with their solo records, and she told me if I left the um, store, good luck. So I searched Hell and High Water, and finally found the Hanging Tough cassette tape, and, you know, I, I had that. I had the games uh, cassette tape, uh, the step-by-step um, t- VHS tape, and then um, last year, I think I went on, no, no, two years ago, I went on eBay and I got the Face the Music album. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I just, I, I said thank you, and uh, I'm glad, you know, we could still, even at your age, be being, being influenced and you get to experience, you know, some good music and, uh, you know, some good memories. Right, and um, before I go, I want to mention this. I was looking at the BET Awards, and they was doing the post-show. This was last year, and um, one of the correspondents was talking with Chris Brown, and Chris Brown was gave new kids props in terms of, like, his dancing influences. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's one thing that kind of gets a, a little bit lost with us is, you know, we we definitely, we all... You know, aside from maybe John. John was a little, you know, rhythmically challenged. So John had two left feet. I wouldn't say that, but it compared to the rest of us, you know, we definitely, we could move. It and took him longer to learn the steps. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, he found his way. But we grew up dancing. And I grew up, like, battling people and breakdancing. Popping and locking. All of that. Getting your turbo on. Oh, uh, all of that, all of that. Beat Street. Breaking. So, so, can you still pop it and lock it? Uh, if I had to, no doubt. Mm-hmm. No doubt I could do it. But, uh, we'll see if I'll ever have to pull that out again. Yeah, we'll have, we have to see that. Ladies and gentlemen, Time Machine exclusive, Danny Wood, former member of the late 80s, early 90s, teen pop group, New Kids on the Block. Danny Wood, thank you for doing this interview. Hang on the line.